Nuclear proliferation. Global pandemic. Famine. Environmental genocide. War. Mankind teeters on the brink of a second dark age. Everywhere you turn, chaos, anarchy, and shadow. In these bleak days, under the fading light, where businesses and the little guy are left for dead on the side of the byway, and people cry out for the rule of law, humanity is at a breaking point where there is no light at the end of the tunnel, and everything good seems to have been barred, or banned, or barred. Two men offer up their voices in the darkness, a shining beacon leading the huddled masses into the safe harbor of good business practices and occasional time travel. Here are your hosts, the Sirens of Sanity, David Pridham, and L. Bradley Sheaf. Don't know much about history. Don't know much biology. Don't know much about science books. I don't think anyone can argue that is an outstanding song. You're probably wondering to yourself, you know, why? Why did we pick Wonderful World? Well, he tells us right off the bat, that being Terrence Trent Darby, who did record that in the 80s, but obviously was a cover of the immortal Sam Cooke, who initially recorded in 1960. The opening line is, don't know much about history. And if that's true of you, you're going to enjoy this week's podcast. That's right, Brad, because we have Bruce Carlson uh, of the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast and we're very excited to learn a little bit about what history can tell us about what's happening today and more importantly what's going to happen tomorrow right on Bruce, do you want to say a little something about your podcast and and what you're doing sure. these days sure my history can beat up your politics is a podcast available on you know apple podcasts and all, all the all the places uh and uh we use history to elevate, hopefully, the politics of today, political discussion, ele elevate and inform, provide a little context, a little backstory, and to look at some mystery. Sometimes we do repair work on some of the history, too, because uh, sometimes it needs it. And we tell a lot of stories and hopefully have some fun. I think the first thing we want to talk about is, is the concept of history repeating itself, right? Because we're mm -hmm. now uh, seeing that we're you know, a divided country, we're mm -hmm seeing politics really ending friendships and mm -hmm. uh, people that are so bitterly divided. What, what do you think about that? Does, does, is it, is it cyclical? Does history just continue to repeat itself? I think, uh, yeah, I, I love the, uh, it, it's misattributed to uh, Mark Twain, but it's the line about uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes because it's never, you know, 100% even doing the show that we do. I often have to point out there are new events in history and, and you have new types of politicians that come on the scene. Boy, did we ever recently, but it's not the first. I mean, um, and, uh, and so uh, particularly that question about the intensity or the uh, bitterness of politics or people being partisan and divided. You know what though? It's almost always been the case. And um, one thing that's really clear to me, the more I study, say, the late 19th uh, century in America and our politics is that 
if you take away Republican and Democrat, because the Democrats were getting quashed um, nationally uh, in and not winning too many presidential elections, you just had Grover Cleveland for the whole heck and uh, second half of um, of the 20th century. If you take away Republican versus Democrat and you look at what really was the partisan politics at the time, which was intra-Republican, bitter, bitter fighting. James Blaine and Roscoe Conkling, like, you know, once you disagreed with Conkling in a kind of a smart way, smart aleck way, let's say, on the floor of the Congress, you never talked to him again. I mean, him, Conkling and Blaine were two leaders of the Republican Party and would not speak to each other after an encounter in the 1860s. And the one comment I'll always make is, as since the presidency was created, there's only been about two or three elections where it wasn't actively contested by two very powerful and, you know, populated parties uh, who wanted that office desperately. It's always been contested. You know, in general, there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of, while there are a lot of extremes, there's also a lot of uh, moderation and hopefully, uh, American democracy still is a good example for the rest of the world, still better than other systems being tried. Certainly, um, certainly better than a, than, a, than a lot of countries have. Yeah, Bruce, I, I'm glad to hear you say that because I think you're exactly right. right? I mean, I, I think that not only have we sort of been here before in terms of, you know, just the heated, divisive nature of politics, uh, but I also believe in the system, right? I mean, one of the great things about a democracy is, you know, so long as you have faith that that democracy is being sort of well implemented in terms of there being free elections and properly counting the votes and all those sorts of things, that with a democracy, you get what you deserve, right? I mean, you get what you vote for. And at least in my experience, uh, both David and I are, are um in our early 50s, as David will immediately jump in and tell you, yes, I am two years older. Uh, but, you know, we've been around long enough to have seen the pendulum swing. And it seems like the American electorate, you know, tends to look at what who's in power, decide they're a bunch of clowns, kind of vote the other way next time. That pendulum swings back. It tends to swing a little too far. The American electorate then looks at that and goes, well, geez, that's not what we want either. Votes the other way next time. And we sort of always wind up you know, kind of swinging back and forth through the middle. And I think we're likely to see that again. I mean, in my opinion, the Democrats, you know, having control of, of both houses of Congress and the White House have done what both parties have tended to do when they're in that situation. They've overplayed their hand. They've, you know, taken their arguments to the extreme. You know, if you're in that position, you have this unique opportunity to be reasonable and to show the American electorate that you can lead and that you can stay focused on the important. And of course, no one's ever done that. And I, I think the Democrats are, are not doing that again. I think you know, the, the fact that suddenly Dr. Zeus is you know, the root of all evil is kind of an example of that. I'm just wondering, you know, not only what your opinion is on that, if you think that's true, but also for folks who tend to be moderate and this extremism you know, sort of startles them or scares them about the future of the system, you know, what you might recommend them reading to kind of get a sense of the fact that, hey, we've been here before, this is sort of the American way, and, you know, it does not herald the doom of America. Oh, I mean, I'm a Richard Rorty fan. Um, you know, that is a little 
a little lefty of the intellectuals, but lefty, lefty center. Um, there's a great one. Um, of course, and you know, I'm not not quite remembering it. It'll come to me, but it's about uh, America and it's uh, um, we we deserving our country. I believe is the uh, is something like that. It's almost worthy of a lookup. But um, that's just one book. I think generally, it, here's something I thought about recently. Why do people spend all this time on the news? It changes every day. The name that you're hearing about that you don't hear about them three days later. Um, you should cover the news. News should be digested. And it's just another thing that I think we're still adjusting to technologies. You know, when TV first came out, the first Senate candidate to come up with um, TV ads was a fellow in Connecticut. And uh, he just won his election that way. But that didn't work after a certain period of time. Like a new technology needs to be adjusted to. We're still kind of figuring out the social media. We're, we're making it like the epicenter of all our lives. And we need to start like digesting more like, okay, what's the news of the of the past couple of days? And also people should consider their history diet along with their news diet. Why aren't they reading more history than they are news? I don't understand it because the one sticks around a little longer, you know, but the news to me, while I understand it's important, but I sometimes have to go on other podcasts to find out what the news is or and especially when the news is simply something a columnist said today or some opinion that somebody had and it changes all the time. Um, you know, I'm thinking of uh, Thomas Friedman's, uh, you know, 11 takes on the Iraq war during that time. That was the big joke. So you see that that there's a lot of uh, back and forth. Uh, and uh, you saw it in 2020 that Americans have the ability to correct um, their elections. We also have the ability to correct at the state and local level. You do have to be careful, though, of some harmful things that I see. And certainly when some of the post-election practices, I, I certainly didn't like. I don't like like trying to jam things into a like one canvassing board in a certain city like that. You got to watch those things because then we might not have the democracy where those type of normal changes happen. Yeah, yeah. So what's what's interesting to me is the is the using history to form comparisons to try to predict the future and 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 just sort of to to you know juxtapose one historical figure against another. And so mm-hmm. with Trump, there's that um, natural comparison to Andrew Jackson. What do you what do you think yeah. about that? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot that fits. There's some things that don't. Um, there's some things that don't. Well, Jackson uh, didn't have a, a Twitter feed, so that's one. But can you imagine? Pro-immigration, huge supporter of immigration, huge supporter of you're naturalized as an American when you arrive here and you become an American, as his as his uh, ancestors did. Wouldn't have liked any kind of policy of restriction. And, and there are political benefits to Jackson as well for that immigration. So let's not get ourselves a little bit there. But um, and that's that's true of all these presidents that we now don't like, like Franklin Pierce and Buchanan, I guess, supporters of immigration. So different from him on that policy. Um, low tariff man, Jackson, low tariff man would be the, low tariff would be the entire Democratic Party. Um, he Trump takes the policy of oddly enough for some, I guess, you know, uh, Lincoln and Teddy Roosevelt, which would be high tariff, um, protect American industry, keep out uh, um, 
foreign industries, but also that increases prices for Americans and those who uh, are buyers rather than makers didn't like it very much. Jackson would have been a low tariff guy and fought strenuously for it. On the other hand, he's a populist. And he, you know, just from his inauguration, when they had this huge spillover crowd at the White House, I mean, he was the president of the people. So Trump, by his own admission, wanted that image. He put him up in the White House. Um, But then there's this whole set of things that comes with Jackson, like the uh, Cherokee removal that are uh, very negative. Um, and, um, and so, you know, if you do now, if you put up Jackson in right in 2017 in the White House, you're also making that statement or making a statement by not making one that it doesn't matter. And there's a lot of it, like I heard a host who call it reverse virtue signaling. And that's exactly what I think it is. I think a lot of it is like, hey, I don't have to care about that, the Cherokee removal. I'm putting up Jackson's thing anyway. We do have to worry though, I will, I will say like I got, I remember getting a bad review early on because I talked about reading old books. And what I like about books is they don't change, right? You can't, can't go in and rip out the pages and change the book, it's the book. Um, I worry a little bit about the web. I think most of a lot of the web is still extant. I don't think all of it's changing, but I do like to use old books. I have to point out where sometimes they're biased or wrong, you know, um, or they're, uh, I was doing one on the reconstruction. I used James Ford Rhodes. I had to point out that he's very biased. He doesn't like the reconstruction. He wanted it to end and bring white government back in the South. But on the other hand, here he is talking about how terrible this particular massacre of African-Americans was. So you've got to like, you know, we need those, we need all the voices um, because we will lose something, but you never get around a little bit of um, this. It really changed. Like since the nineties has been a lot of more cultural interpretation. Some of it's good. Like we, we study more than we ever did about native Americans in, in the right way. That's good. Is it, does it mean that you can no longer talk about, you know, Jefferson, right? Or, or Jefferson's father who was in Virginia making maps and working with those uh, Indian tribes early on, like, do we no longer care about certain stories? So I think it's like, you have to, and you have to have the polyhedra of views and read a lot. And uh, um, it's, it's a tough, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that things could get too far. I do wonder if we're there yet. I also get wary of if somebody like I get wary of too much political correctness. I also get wary of somebody who might be making a career out of, um, hey, I'm outraged every day by some new PC thing. You know, I don't like that either. Um, and I and I wary of both things. I think so, most people are. So so Bruce, one one thing we do on our show each week is we have a a, a little segment we call time machine right and that's where one mm-hmm. of us goes back in time usually brad um and you, know, you send them to some pivot point in history and have a discussion about uh have a discussion about what you would do or what you could do to 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 change history and it's a fun little thing uh, you know we're we're you know everything from the jfk assassination to you know uh, to biblical times and so as a as a student of history if, if you could go back um, to one event, you know, where would you go and what would you do? If it's just one, I want to be in the Constitutional Convention, folks. You know, I want to be there. I'm going to be in Philadelphia with the green room, with the chairs. Um, but um, 
time period, I'm really intrigued by the 1920s. I feel like yeah. it's the modernizing. It's the decade between the America we know and the one that we don't. It's the modernizing decade to where if you start going to the 1890s, it's kind of modernizing too, but there's a lot there that we're not even going to understand. Well, the 20s starts to feel pretty, you know, yeah, I get, we got cars, we got airplanes, we got uh, trucks, we got, you know, schools, buildings. You got, Cal uh, you got Calvin Coolidge. Calvin Coolidge, you know, yeah. the <laughs> radio. <laughs> <more exciting>. yeah. <laughs> and here, here's another question. So one thing we've been, we, we debate a little bit about are, um, we find these little quirky things in history and we talk about them. And one of the things we've been doing over the past few weeks is trying to rate presidential horses, right? <laughs> now, I know that it sounds a little out there, but people love it. And so we've sort of done an NCAA bracket, if you will. And we've gone through and we've had these hypothetical debates about which horse would win a hypothetical race. And we're down to the final four. And the final four are... Um, uh, George Washington had a horse named Magnolia. Um, mm -hmm. The uh, um, uh, let's see, uh, Jefferson had a horse named Carcaticus. Uh, Abe Lincoln had his horse, Old Bob. Old Bob, and, yeah. And there's a horse that um, uh, William Henry Harrison rode in his ill-fated inaugural, right? <laughs> a white horse that. No one, they, people call it Old Whitey, but that's actually the name of Zachary Taylor's horse. So they, they, there have been articles written about how people don't know the name of that horse. And actually, a fun fact about that inauguration was John Quincy Adams was there, and he said just the look on the face of that horse sent a, a, a chill down his spine. It was the meanest looking horse he had ever seen. <laughs> and so, you know, th those are our four top four, you know, final four horses. Do you have any good uh, presidential horse stories? <laughs> not sure I do. Not, I'm not thinking of a, of a um, president's horse. Okay. Um, uh, I believe it was James Monroe who got into a little bit of trouble um, for accepting a horse from the King of Spain because of the uh, emoluments clause. So uh, that's, uh, yep, that was James Monroe. Um, sort of his uh, checkers moment. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> he, and, we're, and we're keeping it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, he, he uh, yeah, he, there, was, there was no scandal, though, with that one. Uh, he just, I think, a, you know, Congress generally has been like, the little gifts are okay, watch the big stuff. But um, I do favor Jefferson's horse in that race, by the way, because uh, I think that uh, he gave it a good workout. I got Washington did too, but uh, Jefferson was uh, pretty much going to be a daily rider. Um, I don't ride horses, but I understand it's good exercise. It certainly was for these people. That's yeah, what Reagan, Washington Reagan loved it. Reagan loved it. Oh yeah, that and chopping the wood. Chop, <laughs> uh, chop. Uh, but um, you know. Uh, this is what they did. Uh, this is how they kept fed. Uh, a lot of horse uh, walking and, you know, they weren't necessarily doing Pilates. Now, Roosevelt just started to get again into that closer to that modernizing period where he's doing the he's doing the calisthenics and the shadow boxing. And boxing in the in the White House, right? Yeah. And beating up people. And uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Bruce, this has been this has been great. We, we appreciate you. Uh, joining and, and and talking about some of the very important uh, um, aspects of history that sort of give us a little insight into what's happening today and what could happen 
uh, uh, tomorrow. Maybe you could give our listeners uh, another plug uh, about your podcast and where we can find you in the uh, uh, land of podcasts. Oh, sure. And thanks for having me on. It's uh, www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Uh, you know, if you, you can type my history can beat up your politics into Google or go on Apple podcasts and, and, um, and it was just, we've been doing it since 2006. Um, my joke is that's when, you know, uh, we had like two cups in the string, you know, for podcasts, but it, I did do a phone upload by the way. So it might, I'm becoming historic myself. Um, so it's been around a long time. I'm pleased to have a lot of fans. Um, and if you like history and politics in a combination, then uh, definitely, yeah, please check me out. Well, Bruce, uh, certainly we're big fans and we can tell everybody, you know, listening here that if, if you have any interest in history or if you, even if you haven't in the past, but the, you know, the, the things that are going on in our country today are causing you concern, or you'd like to understand the historical basis for where we've been and how we've got here, then, then we cannot recommend highly enough Bruce's podcast. So we would direct you to him. I'm sure you'll be a fan as well. And Bruce, again, we, we much appreciate you taking the time. We look forward to having you on again sometime soon in the near future on uh, IP Frequently. Thanks so much. This has been IP Frequently. Once again, clearing a forest of lies with the machete of truth. You're welcome.